Because you changed the controls, actually. A little bit. Like, I changed the volume of the audio clips that they can't... Like, if I forget to turn them down, they don't blast our ears away. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. And welcome back to the Plants and Pets podcast. We are back after, I think, four or five weeks off on our summer break. Hello, Yoram. Hi, Tegan. It's so good to talk to you again. Yeah, actually, we have not been talking to each other that much either, which is I mean, we've a been talking, bit sad. We've been talking a lot to each other for a week, and then yeah. we didn't talk to one that another. Was... But there's nothing that happened there. Apart from now, I tried to glue your eyes sh- uh, shut. And oh. maybe maybe that's the reason we didn't talk after that. <laughs> yeah, I was sulking the whole time. We went on holidays firstly together, actually with a large group of our friends from sort of all over Europe, um, gathering together, PhD mm-hmm. friends. And we gathered together in a house and that was very nice. And I made Yoram do beauty on me. <laughs> so, yes. uh, <laughs> Did you have to pluck my eyebrows or you had to curl my eyelashes? I had to curl your eyelashes, um, but I, I, I didn't get a chance to... To dye them? No, I also dyed them, right? I, I don't know. I think somebody you else had, did like, some dyeing. You, you, you required... Somebody else dyed my hair and bleached my hair and there was a lot of... Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I am very of this like bird-like belief that mutual grooming is the way to like cement friendships. And I just want... I think I, I really enjoy how awkward like and how uncomfortable it makes everybody because they're like, what if I ruin this? What if I ruin your eyebrows? And I'm like, I, I don't really care. It'll be fine, right? Like it's not they'll grow back hopefully unless you really burn them badly and so i kind of enjoy like the the high stakes Mm -hmm. but also low stakes of it all and for me it was fun it was like a lab procedure with a protocol Mm. that it required like multiple different weirdly smelling bottles some of it definitely had some like uh better makeup to ethanol or similar stuff in it (laughs) because i think it was reducing disulfide bonds in the hair or something when you perm the eyelashes perming the eyelashes so it's curling them upwards Um, yeah it reminded me to have near your eyes in fairness yeah but it reminded me of um the protein biochemistry that we were doing it reminded me of I mean, we were breaking, for the proteomic stuff I was doing, I was breaking disulfide bonds as well <laughs> to then put stuff in the mass spec. So it was just like that. It was exactly, also the result, I think, was just as good as the stuff I did in the lab. <laughs> yeah, one one was curlier than the other, I would say. It was not like, <laughs> yeah, also, but that might be on me. That might be my eyelashes, not Yeah, but I also tried you. to do it to the bottom lashes because like, I couldn't figure out at at first that you only want to curl. Oh, the yeah, you tried to curl lashes. the bottom ones upwards. That was less <laughs> ideal. That seems like the sort of thing where you're like following the protocol too hard, and you're not stepping back and being like, "Yeah, how? Yeah, how what, should this make sense logically? Yeah, <laughs> like, what, what, should, what am I actually doing here? Not, what's not at the all. essence of the rules as opposed to like exactly the? <laughs> no, by the word you said, glue on the lashes. I took all of the lashes I could find and glued them on. <laughs> So we did have an idea that while we were in the the big house together with all of our friends, we would also do a podcast. That obviously did not happen. It was very hot and we just basically lounged in the pool and mm-hmm. in the shade and ate as much food as we could and yeah. frolicked with children and stuff. And that was, that was a good holiday. Yeah, well, it was good, yeah. And then I got immediately sick from frolicking with too many children. <laughs> I realized I am, I don't have your now immunity from always hanging out with kids. I and also got sick. Like, you got I, sick anyway. <laughs> so, so yeah. I think I, that's the story of our life. But then you also journeyed a little bit through Paris. and Yeah, we, like, we made a best sort of a bad situation. We were driving with a car. I, I was building out a camper van throughout the year. Um, and uh, this was our big trip. And then the car broke down 
pretty much after half of the trip, so we couldn't make our way back. And Not we- even, I mean, the car broke down after like three hours out of Berlin on the way over, but then that was quickly solved, right? This was Yeah, like the whole story is like much more complicated, but yeah, it had like a little breakdown on the way there, but that was due to uh, our workshop not doing their job correctly and then like some fuel line blew off and that was annoying and scary blew off, not blew up guys it's fine it wasn't I mean, that. we were really lucky like it's a diesel car and then i learned that if it would have been a gasoline car and and it would have sprayed gasoline all over the engine block the whole car would oh, have been on fire dangerous. the diesel okay. just starts to smoke and doesn't really burn and so it's comparatively safe um, so they didn't, the whole car didn't burn down. But if it would have been a gas car and the same would have happened in a gas car, that would have meant the end of the car. So we were lucky in that respect. They could fix that quickly. And then we made our way to the middle of France. And then on the way back, the engine made a really terrible noise. And we figured out that you can't drive back home 1,600 kilometers with a engine noise because that means that your engine is about to break down. And so... It was all very stressful, but we ended up in Paris, and then we had a very nice week in Paris and ate so much. Like we actually invited a friend from Berlin over, with whom we talked about how much we want to go to the bakery in Paris together to eat all of the croissant and all of the baked stuff. And so we ended up in Paris, and we contacted him. We're like, "Hey, we are uh, suddenly oh, yeah. in Paris. Do you want to come over?" And she was, "Yeah, absolutely." She had a voucher left over from an EasyJet flight that was cancelled due to the to COVID. And then she flew over and then we had a very oh, good amazing. week in, in Paris together and trying all of the different things. Like my little son, he got really into macaron. And so every time <laughs> for breakfast, we went into the bakery and I got like a croissant and a baguette and he wanted the macaron. And every day he t- took some different flavors and I had like his little, like three little macaron on his uh, breakfast table and was very delicately like eating those. Kind like of always fancy wanted, little boy. <laughs> yeah, you've always kind of hoped your son would be like a tiny little French boy, right? Like a little fancy <laughs> little French boy. And now those dreams have come true. Yeah, yeah, he was really much into into the macaron, and uh, yeah, so we had then a, a good time, uh, but still, like overall, the the whole holidays left me a little bit exhausted with all of the stress w- with the kids and the car, and then we had to take a train back home, and yeah, a train ride in in Germany in the summer is not a lot of fun, and so I came home that- and was like, I would like to go on holidays now. <laughs> Is that like a stage of our life now where I'm wondering if, so in order, there's this sort of options of holidays where you can do the really relaxing holiday where you just sort of go and lie on a beach or you go on a cruise or you go into a hotel and just do that. And I feel like largely speaking, we still feel like we're too young for that. We still want to explore more and be a little bit more energetic. But we're not as young as we used to be and we can't. I mean, you know, in my 20s, I was doing these like long weekends every few weekends and flying off to places and then coming Mm -hmm. back and working. And I I can't. That's exhausting. You know, that's that's too much. So we're kind of in that middle zone where we still want to do the exciting things and don't quite have the energy. I have the feeling and just like feel very, very tired. Um, Yeah, but for me, it's definitely the the kids like traveling with two young kids and then such a long distance is not the best idea. That's fair, I think. I I got in my head that I was going to climb a mountain. So I like, (laughs) I I don't even, so I think like what happened is my my boss mentioned that she was going to Snowdonia, which is this sort of national park region in, in Wales. I've never been to Wales and I looked at Snowdonia and it looks fantastically beautiful and then my boyfriend was talking about how he had like climbed some mountains in Scotland. So I was like, yeah, I can do that. I can climb mountains. I'm cool like your friends. Um, I'm not. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so I just was like, hey, we're going to go do this thing and climb the mountain. It's, 
I mean, I think I've mentioned this before, but when the zombie apocalypse comes, the reason I die will be because of overconfidence in my own abilities. I was just like, okay, we're planning this holiday. We're going to climb the mountain. And I didn't even think about the fact that I, I, I mean, I just assumed that I could climb the mountain and it was awfully hard. It was, it was, it was, it was 10 degrees hotter than it is usually on average in August. Like we went during a heat wave. Obviously there's no shade on a mountain. There was not much cloud cover. And I just like panted and sweated and burned the whole way up and my boyfriend had to like encourage me and tease me and like basically <laughs> push me up the mountain feed me ice creams when I collapsed like it was just it was so hot <laughs> so hard and I really I don't I don't know where why did I think of this why did I think that was an idea of a thing I, I could think- do I think that's that's the normal reaction to mountain climbing because it's something I also really enjoy doing it or at least I enjoy the concept in of doing it. In hindsight, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed looking forward to it. The day before I went up, I was terrified. I was like, oh my God, what have I done? This is not going to work. The day of and the day after, I felt awful. Like I came off the mountain, immediately got a headache and then had to have a little like emergency nap. And then about a week later, I was like, wow, that was beautiful and amazing. I was looking through the photographs and like I had recovered. But it, the, the actual doing it thing <laughs> was just like physiologically awful. <laughs> To me, it's always the beginning of the ascent is always terrible. After five minutes, I'm I'm asking myself, why am I doing this to myself? Why did <laughs> yep, I not yep. practice or prepare in any way? It's just like going upstairs forever and ever. Yeah, why I haven't am gone I doing upstairs. This? <laughs> I take the lift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why am yeah. I doing this? And then, at least for me, I at one point get into some sort of stage of overcoming this and then it's fine and it's more like a fight against my body and then I'm sort of the anger drives me up there and then on the summit I love it and on the way back down it's usually also fine and then in hindsight I'm like oh this is this was amazing I want to do this again but whenever I'm at the at the foot of a mountain um I ask myself, why? Why would I? Why would I go up there? Like, why would I do all no, of this? No, you're right. I, I felt I spent the first like nearly one half just being like, oh gosh, this is going to be so awkward when I have to explain to my boyfriend that I, like, I was like shame of like I'm going to have to give up and how am I going to like like how am I going to like look big and strong in front of my boyfriend if I have to turn around? And then like when I got to the halfway house, I was like, okay, but we're halfway now. So like that was when like the determination set in. I'm like, I've made it halfway. I can't give up now. Like I have to yeah. reach the top now. This is the like go yeah. go go but, and you um, get used to the burning muscles and everything and you just like, it's and yeah you're right going down was fun like that was yeah doable again yeah we did that yeah. once in in scotland and uh the day before the mountain looked beautiful no clouds and everything on the day in the morning it also looked nice but as soon as we reached a certain point on the mountain everything was covered in clouds and it gets like really cold and really wet and you don't see anything we didn't even know yeah. if you really managed to get to the summit we looked on google maps on a gps signal if that's a approximately the summit because literally we could see 10 meters ahead so we couldn't we couldn't re- like in, te- in a 10 meter circle around us everything was sloping downwards so we thought it pro- and according to the gps it probably was the summit but we can't tell for sure if you reach the summit and then we sort of ran back down <laughs> had a very hot shower lied down and said like this was Done. terrible but it, the next day i was like oh this was actually fun i would like to go up that mountain again because look there's no clouds <laughs> That's the thing. I think it's one of those things where it's like awful doing it, but in hindsight, 
Yeah. Great. Great experience. What else is your news? I can see like a big thing on the notes that you clearly want to mention. Uh, there's a small small thing first because it still ties in with the holidays. It's that uh, I can only recommend the Paris Science Museum to everyone um, going to Paris. Uh, I thought this was a very beautiful museum. We actually went two days in a row because they had a kids exhibition and it was a lot of fun and my son wanted to go again the next day. I was like, yeah, I could look at the rest of the museum as well. And so we went again and had a look there and they did like... Sorry, a- sorry was, the, was that the one where they taught your child how to be a tiny coal miner? Yeah, yeah, that's that. <laughs> they had a very interactive um, kid uh, exhibition for kids from two to seven, and I think one from five to twelve or something. Um, and we were went to the smaller one, and I had one setting that was called cooperation, and it was pretty much a big construction site. Uh, I framed it as a coal mine later because I found it funnier, but it's a big construction <laughs> site, and all of the kids. Uh, they had to push lorries around and move little foam bricks and have a li- had a little crane that they could operate and um, a conveyor belt. But all of that only worked when they worked together. Like somebody had to open um, a cross beam. Is that the word that goes up and down? The Sure. I don't know. But yep, sure. what you have at, at railroad crossings, the, the thing, the red and white big wooden beam that closes down the street. Somebody had to operate that while somebody else was pushing the lorry and somebody else had to run the conveyor belt. So it was to teach the kids cooperation and it was a lot of fun like a big playground but I was amazed at how they used um, digital screens and digital tools to have still an exciting exhibition where you didn't just look at TVs the whole time but had mm-hmm. some interactive stuff but also interactive stuff that made sense not just a touch screen because you have a touch, touch screen available so you just like pat on stuff that doesn't need to be touched um, but really interesting things um, they had a digital uh, um, cream cr- cream beating machine or something where they had an exhibition all around high class cooking like fancy cooking um, what's okay, the word like molecular it? gastronomy kind that, of thing that also but also just sort of traditional f- uh, fancy cooking I don't forgot the word forgot word, word, word for it high cuisine or haute cuisine haute cuisine haute cuisine, haute cuisine. Um, yeah because yeah French obviously um, <laughs> and they, they had like professional chefs on screen telling you how to beat cream, like how to hold your hand. And then you had a little thing that looked like a bowl and a whisk, uh, but it would register how you touched the bowl with the whisk. And then you had to like whip cream by hand with the machine. And then it would tell you how well you did, how how well you did the okay. technique and stuff. It was really exciting. And actually, I, I learned something. And now I... I I understood how to do that and now sometimes I do that at home and sometimes even with like I, I mix an omelette and I do it with like a cream whiskey and style now and now everyone gets, like, who super goes to house is going to get like a small TED talk about how he whipped the cream or how he whipped the eggs or I how he whipped it, the pancake batter I, I rarely had an interactive display on a, in a museum that got me so excited and it was so much fun and actually taught me a skill that was not only like something ridiculous but it taught me a skill and the whole um, exhibition about the haute cuisine was really really well done um they also had like madeleine um dyed in different colors that didn't fit the flavor and then you had sort of Mm -hmm. a sensory experience uh, when it tasted fruity but looked black um and stuff like that so okay that the the whole thing it constantly has changing exhibitions interactive then yeah yeah so if you if you are in paris and if you are interested in science museum the cité des sciences et de l'univers de uh, l'industrie so the, the Science Museum and Industry Museum is uh, really, really good. Uh, I think it's one of the best science museums I've been to. Although the one in London is also really good. I also enjoyed that a lot. Um, 
yeah so that that was that my sort of tip for everybody anyone who's interested in that and the other thing um is i quit my job because of many reasons and now i still have to work there until the end of the month but then i'm job hunting uh, so if anybody in the berlin area uh, has a job for me <laughs> reach out although i've already i've i'm also already interviewing with some places and it's uh it's exciting like i might be doing some different stuff from what i've been doing in the past and uh, i'm excited for that uh so this will be uh changes Very in cool. my career that would that will, will be cool because yeah the, the current job like on many ways is not exciting me anymore and I had to change something. And that was also a very fun experience to just quit a job. I've never done that. Like my contracts always run out. And then I had to find oh, a different yeah. job. But to actively write a letter that says, I'm quitting. Um, and then talking to a boss. And then suddenly you're in such a powerful position. Because now, like, what can they do to me? I'm quitting already. Like, <laughs> if, yeah. if they ask me to do something that I really don't want to do or that makes absolutely no sense, I can I can argue with very low stakes for me because there's nothing at stake anymore. I'm I'm leaving by the end of the month. So yeah, that's that's me. So hire me if you if you like the the, <laughs> the stuff that I'm I'm saying. Hire me for whatever. It's like I'm I, argumentative and <laughs> please hire me. Not when I, when I haven't quit. I'm very diplomatic and I try to make everybody happy. But once I know that I don't have to do that anymore, okay, okay, okay. I'll take the chances. <laughs> um, I think it might be time for us to talk about some plant stuff. So today, because Already. we're back after <laughs> the holidays, we just are going to do some random fun stuff that we found that appeared on the internet while we have been busy doing other things. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun I have a couple of different things that came out in Science Magazine in the last few weeks. I think, you know, Science is one of the, the big journals and we don't see that much plant stuff. So there's a couple of exciting things that came out. Yoram, I'm not sure if you heard about this one already. It was doing the rounds also in the popular science. It's the fact that there is a red algae. Um, the name is Gracilaria gracilis. Um, which mm -hmm. sounds nice. And they have now found proof that this is being pollinated by a sort of bug of the sea. It's an isopod, but basically it's a sea insect. And they found that this bug is carrying the spermatia, the male bits, um, on its body. And it can okay. move from the male to the female algae. And by doing this, it can actually improve the fertilization of the alga. So how how big is the alga? Because when I think alga, most of the time I think about microalga, but they are big alga, obviously. Oh no, this is this is a macro one. Um, it's I had a look at it. It's it kind of looks like a seaweed, right? I mean, it's it's quite um tubular, but sort of stringy. Um, I don't know if it's got a common name that you can look up. It's just a red seaweed kind of thing. Ooh, that that is a normal sized seaweed. Although it's <laughs> one of the very like, um, <laughs> and I well came done. I came to that conclusion on my own terms. But it's one of the ones that looks sort of hairy. It's the one of the thinner kind. Yeah, uh, so I often think of seaweed tubular of, filament. Yeah, mm. of the big broad leaves, like the one like. Uh, you think of kelp, I think. Yeah, exactly. That's what you're I, thinking. Either of like phytoplankton or tiny algae or kelp, but there's yeah. like some kind of yeah. normal grassy to bushy sized things in in between this is one of the kind of it's not a seagrass but it's it's kind of i mean it's a red algae 
Um, anyway, it's it's cool because this is something where the the algae would otherwise have to sort of rely on stuff moving by sea currents, which is obviously a little bit problematic. Um, usually, organisms just end up releasing tons and tons of, of sperm. But I do like what they say is that the male gametes are not flagellated, so they can't sort of swim. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have the ability for motility themselves. But also the female gametes are not free, but in the abstract they use the term lim- liberated. So it's um, <laughs> a red algae in which female gametes are not liberated and male gametes are not flagellated, which <laughs> I like the wording as well. Um, okay. So that's that's one thing that came out in science, I think at the end of July, One of the other big things that came out that's very relevant to us in the plant community is that there's been a um, another sort of photosynthesis acceleration paper which is linked to improved crop yield. So this is actually a follow-up paper from something that was published also in Science back in 2016, I think. Um, and in the 2016 papers, the authors improved photosynthesis and thus improved crop productivity by altering how plants um, respond to going in and out of sunlight and shady patches. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, this is something that yeah, basically, like this is something that you'll be familiar with, Yoram. So plants they want to photosynthesize, they want to take the light, but too much light can actually basically harm them you know it's basically you're shooting a laser at the leaves so if the sun gets too bright they have to do photoprotective mechanisms which is basically them kind of shielding themselves from the sun and then when the sun sort of goes down again maybe it goes behind a cloud or things get like darker they have to then sort of turn off those photoprotective mechanisms and one of the problems is that this takes time every time it's done so it takes time to turn it on it's usually fairly fast because you know that can happen quite quickly um, but then it has to be undone again and while it's being undone there's sort of vital sunlight that's not going to the plant and therefore there's kind of a loss of productivity um, because the plant has got his sunblock on when he doesn't really need it on. So this is something that's been discussed in the photosynthesis field for a long time that if we can somehow make that response happen faster especially sort of the the unsunblocking response, then we are going to increase how much photosynthesis the plant does, which in turn means we can get more production and more production of crop species in particular. Um, and this was already done, as I said, in 2016. There was a science paper that did it, but they did it in tobacco, which is kind of a model organism. It's technically a crop. I mean, we do harvest it for... <laughs> cigarettes for tobacco um, but it's not a crop in the sense of us wanting to eat the food so um, the new paper that's come out is sort of the similar thing that's now been done in soya bean and the 2016 paper using tobacco they found something like I think a 20 percent um yeah 15 percent increase in dry matter of the tobacco under fluctuating light conditions so this is when the light's going you know brighter and darker and on and off And now the new paper has found, I think, up to 33% increase in um, the seed yield of soya beans. So this Mm. is pretty huge. It's a huge amount. It's gone into the seeds um, themselves. So that's, you know, the important part for us. And it was also done, I think, um, under, under field conditions. So it's kind of enough of a step forward as well to still be quite important. Um, and a cool finding. There is some caveats. So I should just say, I haven't read the the full paper. It's behind a paywall. Um, but I was looking at some of the discussions on it. And somebody did mention that 
this is only a single location that they've grown the plants under. Although they did replicated field trials, it was only within one year and it's just one genotype. So we don't know how sort of applicable this is in the broader yeah. um, sense. But it's pretty good. And just to mention, like, the growth of plants under fluctuating conditions, which is what this is trying to sort of improve, those are real-life conditions we're talking about, right? So that's one of the big differences between growing plants in the lab under sort of like in a, you know, controlled environment and growing them outside in the wild. As in the wild, the light is constantly flickering on and off as clouds go over, as, you know, there's change in weather conditions, all this. Yeah, or self-shading from the mm-hmm. top leaves shading the bottom leaves and stuff like that. So that all creates this constant fluctuation in the light quality, plus all of the other parameters in the field, like humidity that changes, temperature that changes much more than what you do in the greenhouse where you often have only like two light intensities, two temperatures that you alternate between, and then you have mm-hmm. a very regulated watering re- regime that... I don't know, once a day, every two days, somebody comes in and sprays the water, the plants or there is a little dropper in there that constantly keeps them at the same moisture level and stuff like that. So it's very different from the greenhouse to the field. Okay, and there's one more thing that I saw in science, which is actually in the current, like it's the editorial of the current issue of science. It's the August issue. This is actually not specific to plant science. It's a general science discussion um, and it's called rethinking the retraction process so this is sort of something that's been coming up a lot more in the science community i think we have more discussion and also more sort of public figures and public websites where they're looking to see if there are um, mistakes or errors in scientific data including figure manipulation you know duplication and things like that and then this comes into a whole discussion of how who should respond and how that response should happen. So I'm kind of curious, Yoren, what you think about this. Like if somebody, let's say Elizabeth Bick, who's one of the famous people who finds, you know, manipulated images or like problematic mm-hmm. images, if they find an image that's a problem in a paper, let's say it's a science paper, what should be done and whose job is it? Like what should be the steps taken? Oh, I think first you should notify the the journal um, because then they can contact the authors and figure out something with the authors about the correction of the paper. Uh, because mm-hmm. I think it, you should always assume that it's it's a mistake, even though like sometimes I've, like if you look at her tw- Twitter account and see the manipulations that she's posting there, like it's really hard to make the case that they are mis- mistakes. But let's let's assume that, and so like contact the journal. Uh, but give them a tight deadline. Say, like, mm-hmm. we want to hear back from you within, I don't know, something reasonable, two weeks, four weeks, we want to hear back from you. Um, and if not, then go public with it. Uh, if you then maybe, like, ask again, give them a little bit of a grace period and then make it public and say, like, look, we contacted the journal about this. We didn't hear back from them. It doesn't seem that they're taking any action. This is what we what, what we found. Here is the implications of what we found. And then um, publish that somewhere. And I, I know there's Retraction Watch that's sort of already looking mm-hmm. at the end bit of the process. So a blog that collects all of the papers that were retracted or that um, I think also yeah, I think had like major also corrections. Yeah, they're reporting on issues as they come up as well. They're doing earlier yeah. steps as well. Yeah. yeah. So some a place like this and and publish that and then try to to increase. Uh, 
yeah in, increase the attention for this thing for for this uh, so i appearance. guess so i guess my question is so if let's say yeah the the person who finds the mistake contacts the journal in this case we're saying it's science and then science should uh, contact the authors is what you said yeah how do you think the authors are going to respond they either respond with oh um this is a mistake this is an is an earlier version of the figure that should not be in the paper here's the corrected figure with the statement mm -hmm. and then it can be published as a proper correction um or they deny it and they say look there's no image manipulation and then the, the journal has to investigate and good journals should have a team of people who are capable of image forensics they should have or at least they should know a service provider that can can do that they can they should either have it in house or be able to outsource that and then collect some and then investigate mm -hmm. um yeah and if they if the researchers stay completely quiet then it's up to the journal to to decide whether or not they retract the paper on their own, whether they provide an addendum or a correction of the paper. Um, but then it's it's up for the journal. And if they don't do anything, then again it's the public. And then other scientists can look at this and decide for them for themselves if this is something that's worthy to be criticized or if there's something that somebody blows out of proportion. Because it could also always happen, right? Like somebody could just maliciously say this is a forged image. And yep. then if, if the journal is unable to have a, a structured process for that, then it gets into like a, a worse process in so the I public. Think, so that's the thing. I think a lot of this stuff is playing out in public. And as you said, that, that can be really problematic. There's been a lot of discussions about it in the in the um, ocean acidification community. There's a discussion about how um, fish behavior responds to ocean <clears throat> acidification. And there's now a lot of um, allegations about some fake data in that field. And there's been sort of now claims from the other side that there's a lot of bullying happening from the first, like the people mm -hmm. who noticed or commented on those first. So it can get like quite messy in public. Um, in this editorial, so it's written by Holden Thorpe and they mentioned that, so yes, the journal science, they should first contact the authors. That's what they do. But they said like most of the time the authors either deny there's any problems or just insist that there can be very minor corrections made which is often especially as you mentioned when it seems like there's sort of potentially deliberate image manipulation or, or larger issues not very helpful mm -hmm. um, but then before they can actually make a move to retract the journal then should contact the institution of the um, author because the institutions are the ones who are supposed to be responsible for being for investigating so investigating yeah. the because because what's happening there is what you're claiming is uh, misconduct has happened and then there should be an investigation into the whole process like as as a, you know somebody has faked data kind of a larger yeah. issue um, and then this is quite problematic because I mean there's sort of this um, like agreement about how to publish ethically and according to that um, the publisher should then contact the institute every three to six months to try and get a response but that's a long like you know three to six months it, it can quite easily happen that it takes a long time and that's even if the institute does want to respond which can also they themselves might also not be that willing to sort of start pointing fingers at one of their star scientists right it can get quite political yeah. and quite problematic um, so in the editorial he discusses those alternatives you know you could be more aggressive and not go through that formalised process of contacting first the authors and then the institution and investigate it more independently yourself but this can also be problematic because you know if 
something is retracted wrongly, that will that will completely destroy a scientist's career, right? I mean, this is sort of one of these no going back sort of things. Um, and then also coming from the university's point of view, it's not always easy for them to very quickly respond and transparently respond because they also have to sort of assume innocence until there's proof of guilt and that can take a long time and then there's resources involved. So it can, it's something that can be like logistically also tricky as well as yeah. an ethically problematic thing. Um, so, and the, they also mentioned in this editorial that, you know, the university's reputation is also at risk. Um, so, yeah, it can all get yeah, very messy. it's a problem because the whole system is so reputation-based, right? So much of the hiring yeah. is based on reputation. Um, some of the reputation is measured in this impact factor through the papers that you have or the age index or stuff like that. So that's sort of proxy for reputation, but also like just getting invited to certain um, career opportunities is based on reputation and damaging attacking that reputation is powerful but also very dangerous right if if that's wrongful um that's that's very problematic so yeah i, I see the point there um so the solution that this person comes up with in the editorial is that there should be sort of a more um communication which is kind of always the answer more communication between the universities between <coughs> also the government between the funding agencies and between the journals altogether to sort of decide how to do this. And what they're really saying is it should be a two-stage process. So you need to separate the investigation of the scientist from the investigation of the paper. And the first thing that needs to be done is the investigation of the data in the paper. Yeah. And just seeing, is that a problem? Instead of messing, so at the moment, it's too linked to the investigation of the scientist. So you just need to first be yeah. like, we're only looking at this paper. Is there a problem with the images? If that's the case, it's got to go. Retraction. And then the other stuff can come later. Um, exactly. That's and that's what I was yeah. also think. Or at least um, then also make it transparent with like digital publishing. It should be not a big problem to highlight like figures that are under dispute, where you have more than just like somebody accusing, but maybe already like a first or a second analysis of it. Um, you can just in the paper say this image is dip disputed, and then give some details on the process, and so people who are reading the paper can still get some information from it, but also see where it might be problematic without fully retracting the paper when you are not 100% sure what it is. Sort it is also interesting, uh, so quickly, that this this sort of two-method thing, apparently they also checked with Elizabeth Bick, who's this person who mm -hmm. famously pulls up the images. Um, but like one of the things that might be a problem is you yourself mentioned like formal investigator by investigations, you know, hired by, by like proper investigators who are hired by the journals themselves. But like, I'm not sure how much that is a formal thing that we have as a job description, right? I mean, this could also be something where we just don't have that as something that's I, I a know role. That in in um, libraries and universities they have that more and more these uh, people that mostly based based on text but they're looking for plagiarism um, and they have very sophisticated tools by now like there is many tools that mm -hmm. can look at different properties of text and I imagine that must also exist for images um, where they can investigate something and give you an idea if something's um, copied or not from, from a different source if this is an original work or if this is a, a work copy and pasted from other sources stuff like that so that exists uh, at least in libraries so I, I imagine mm. something similar must exist also on the sort of the journal market but probably not that many people so i think it's yeah it's an interesting i'm not sure how easy it, i think it's easy to see if something's copied from something else on the web i'm not sure how easy it is to see if there's like a 
manipulation internally in an image, especially, you know, if a small, you know, if you take a picture and you rotate it and copy it, I don't know how, and it's yeah. like 1% of the image, but it's like a cell that's been, I'm not sure how, I, I don't know. I know there's um, some stuff where you can look at like the, the noise, for example, in a digital image. And if you copy and mm -hmm. paste from two different sources, the noise patterns are slightly different and there are ways to make that visible. And then you can sort of see uh, the yeah. chunks that are copied over. But then in the end, when it comes really to manipulation, um, if often it's about like bands, for example, on a Western blot where you have a gray background and you have a, a dark black band somewhere. And you say, these, these are my samples, you label them. But if in the end you realize, oh, digital manipulation doesn't get me far, then I just load different samples well, on I there mean, and then I, I label them. I think that's the thing. I think, like, I mean, that kind of, you know, in-lab manipulation is kind of impossible, but, like, this is sort of post-manipulation. Yeah. So we're still not very good at even finding that quite obvious manipulation. Yeah. As you said, like, some of these images that Bic puts up on Twitter, they're, they're so clear once she highlights them, but we still can't see them. These are publications that have been out for years and people haven't noticed them or they haven't been retracted yet in any case. Um, yeah. But the other thing to mention apart from that is yes, we're getting better tools for detecting, but we're also getting better tools for cheating as far as like there's now all these AIs where you can sort of generate papers or generate data or like, you know, mm -hmm. make stuff look random as well. So, I mean, it's it's a bit of an arms race in that way. But anyway, I think it's interesting. Um, I think we've discussed this before, the idea that it should be easier to make retractions and there should be sort of you know especially it should be easier to make retractions where there are errors because part of it as you said is also reputation and if we put so high a price on oh my gosh that scientist made a retraction they're a bad scientist no sometimes you, like people always make mistakes and if yeah. we can make it easier to fix mistakes do corrections or make retractions when there are mistakes that could also ease the process to like separate the kind of honest mistakes from dishonest mistakes as well yeah yeah I have something um, completely different now, uh, something that I stole from uh, one of our favorite podcasts from Baby Geniuses, where I was really surprised to have such a cool um, plant science fact suddenly in that show that's very much not about plant science. <laughs> it's sometimes about, about plants as in gardening, but then also like in very specific plants that they garden. But they, they had a very cool story and then I read up more on it. Um, and ha have you heard the episode about the American chestnut? No, so not yet. then you will. Be, I will spoil <laughs> that part of the ride. episode for you. Um, <laughs> I'm now going to hear like my favorite podcast paraphrased through your <laughs> mouth. Now I'm 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 talking about the the paper now or the the, the story that's behind mm -hmm. it. Um, so it's about the American chestnut, and that's a very important tree in Northern America, especially like historically. Uh, we've read in uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's book. Um, now I forgot braiding the, sweetgrass. The braiding sweetgrass, exactly how um, these chestnuts were also very important for the indigenous population. There were very large chestnut populations across the Northern American continent, uh, and their their chestnuts they would be eaten by pigs. So they could they would sometimes like uh, raise pigs based on these chestnuts, and that would be then an important uh, meat source for them. But they could also like directly eat the chestnuts. Um, I think they were also involved in this like mast seeding, where suddenly all of chest nuts would ripen at the same time and you had this massive boost of chestnuts mm -hmm. in one year yep. and then like weaker years to, to, to follow and that was very important for the ecosystems as well so they were an important central part of ecosystems and culture and, and human use um, but then uh, a fungus was introduced to Northern America probably th uh, through the, the uh, zoo in, in New York 
and this fungal disease uh, swept across the continent and killed many of these American chestnut trees. Um, it's a fungus that um, expresses uh, or that creates oxal acetate and uh, and sort of in all of the tissue okay. above the fungal infection. So it sort of puts it into the the water streams of the tree and then it kills everything above the fungal infection. So it's this oxal acetate is pushed throughout the tree and then, then it kills it. And um, it the, it's important that it's just like the above parts because sometimes the trunks remain and then can re-sprout, but overall it did massive damage to these American chestnuts and they are now far fewer than they used to be. Um, and that's a great concern, of course, for like biodiversity, for, for ecologists and so on. Um, it's uh, quite dramatic. But now researchers have um, taken a gene from wheat that is resistant to this type of fungus and um, put that in the tree. So they created a genetically modified American chestnut tree or like a line of chestnut trees. And the okay. gene that they're taken is quite simply an oxal acetate oxidase. Um, so something that can detoxify, that can um, disarm this um, weapon of the fungus. It can disarm the oxal acetate. Um, and I mention that so specifically because it's... Uh, a fairly specific reaction there and only takes out the oxal acetate. So it's not something, it's not a poison that's killing the, the fungus, which is also a problem. Like the fungus is not killed by this. It just makes the tree resistant to the oxal acetate. And the main struggle was getting the promoters right, getting the expression levels right. Like it is so often, like you know that like this building block is what you want, but then you put it in the plant and it just doesn't work immediately. And mm -hmm. so you have to figure out, fine tune the and promoters. And they're working with trees as well, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess it's seedlings, but still it's a freaking tree. It's not like an Arabidopsis weed. But now they're at the point where they have pretty much an orchard of these trees growing um, under very tight restrictions. So they have to bag every flower and they have to, uh, so that no pollen is um, swept away from the tree population that they're growing there. And then they mm -hmm. have to bag every um, developing chestnut so no squirrels can come in and take the chestnuts away. And then like GM <laughs> okay, chestnut course, trees yeah. can spread before any regulation has been done. And so yeah. like, now they're looking at uh, whether or not they're safe to grow because they want to cross them out into wild populations they want to plant them in the wild and then that their resistance um, pollen spreads to other trees and then helps the tree populations to recover this is the aim and this of course is this is a big scary move exactly. from a gmo point of view yeah exactly that's this now the big the, the big question like is that ethical to do is that is the the loss of biodiversity worse then the potential risks by bringing um, this this transgenic tree population into the wild. And from my point of view, just from the outside, this oxal acetate oxidase seems quite uh, harmless uh, in terms of like environmental impact. Like if there's no oxal acetate present, the oxidase can't do anything to it because it needs the the substrate. It's not uh, it's not a um, a poison that's killing the fungus so you don't have an accumulation of some toxic compounds that then when the tree's rotting are killing other fungi or stuff like that so it seems to to me that quite reasonable to use that but still yeah it's it's sort of scary it's one of it's a very um one of a kind thing to do so far uh, like genetically modified trees are not that common and then also having one with the specific goal of having it run freely in the wild is um, 
Yeah, it's, I need to process this a bit. This is this is yeah. huge. This is like okay, interesting. Yeah, that's why so far they're taking very gr- great care in stopping any spread of it until they have figured out if these trees um, grow healthy are a problem for the ecosystem. Like they're taking all kinds of measurement also around the trees to figure out how does do other plants around it, other organisms around it react to these trees growing there, and that's why they. I, I imagine it must be such a painstaking work to bag every flower on a tree and they have like mm. many trees growing at that point hmm. yeah but i i think it's it's very exciting and i i wonder what comes comes of it because american like u.s american legislation is much more gm friendly than in europe in europe this would be out of the question to do something like that i wonder about the benefit of it if it's really that's like how much you can actually gain from it and how much you can actually lose from it. I have no idea. I'm really curious to see how it how this turns out. I'm not sure what I think, actually. I mean, it's just it's such a weird thing. We're at the stage where everything is so foobar that we're now like, it's not a question of like, should we humans be modifying stuff? It should be we be modifying more to undo the bad modifications we've already kind of made happen like i mean this is in the, you know, in the book, plant book club book that we're reading in rambunctious gardens it talks about conversation uh, uh, conservation and um, ecology and whether we should really go back to a previous time point in terms of conservation or if we have mm-hmm. to make new designer ecosystems because there is no previous time point human influence yeah. is so vast and also like in history where like we we try to to go back to a time before the europeans arrived in northern america but yeah defining the, the, the humans baseline were already is always changing the world there yeah exactly yeah. and so when you think about designer ecosystems or like man-made ecosystems because all of the nature is already influenced by mankind. Maybe we just have to embrace that and try to influence it in a better way because we can't really pull anything out of our influence anymore, especially not with global warming. I find it an interesting idea. I have like I have no final opinion on this. I'm also very like curious how other people who are much more dealing with these ethical questions, uh, what conclusions they come to. Um, speaking of things that are from a very long time ago, Yoram, do you have you ever heard of Nanmu? Nanmu? No. No, mm-hmm. no idea what that is. Could you have a guess about what it might be? I mean nun, is it like coming from the word nun? Like the in a monastery? That's the only link that I can Whoa. make. <laughs> it's not, but it's kind of linked in that it is sort of linked to sacred buildings um, and very special things. So I'm going to give you some partial points. It's actually um, <laughs> a Chinese word. So like from the the etymology point of view, you're very far away because we're going into um, yes. <laughs> a different language. Um, but it's it's actually a precious wood that's found in China and South Asia. Um, and historically, it's very important. So it's sort of, a, it's not a species of wood, so that's important. It's kind of a type of wood, but it's not related to any specific species of trees. Um, it's got sort of a nice knot so like patterns, um, wavy or quilted grain. Um, it's also quite strong, so it doesn't respond badly to humidity and temperature. Um, it doesn't expand or contract or crack too much. So basically, because of its properties, it's seen as very superior as a wood. There are different sort of types, but like it's sort of generally seen as a better quality of wood that is is sort of 
a durable but a soft wood to work with. So it was used yeah. for building boats, um, but also for architectural woodwork, as well as carvings and also furniture. Uh, and one of the most famous examples of the use of this Namu wood is in the Forbidden City. So there's a wooden palace. It's the largest existing wooden palace um, in the whole world. And people knew that it was wood and they knew it was Nanmu wood, but they didn't know which of the species of Nanmu it is. Um, and there were some discussions about whether it was lots of different species or just one species and where that is. So there is a really nice paper that came out in Plants, People and Planet, which looks into what the species behind the Nanmu wood at the Forbidden City which is um, really sweet. So they, yeah, Nanmu was used exclusively for imperial palace construction in this time period. This is the 15th to the 19th century in China, but the species has been under debate. So they go back and they look at not only the morphology, but also use ancient DNA. So they're analyzing um, these specimens um, to try to work out what the DNA is inside them. And they actually managed to extract high quality plastid genomes, so the chloroplast um, from the wood. And they sort of got good coverage, good sequence depth. And using that, they could conclusively determine that there were two different species, Phoebe Zenon and Phoebe Hui, which are most likely um, the ones that are mainly used in the forbidden mm. earth. Forbidden City. So, I don't know. I think this is like a quite a, a, a nice story, and I had not heard about Nunmu as this superior yeah. wood before. I have um, one more sort of tidbit from the same journal, which is Plants, People, and Planet. Um, this is an early view article that has just been released, I think, this week. And I think we've discussed previously on the podcast how there was this whole amazing, actually we wrote about it on the blog as well, there's this incredible search where people went to look for lost species of mm -hmm. coffee. Mm -hmm. So basically the coffee that we drink, it's basically one of two species. We have Arabica or we have... Robusta. Robusta. Um, there's a third species which is mainly drunk in Indonesia, but it's like... I don't know, two or three percent of the, the global coffee um, drinkage. And pretty much everybody wants to drink Arabica. It's like the best one. But the problem is with climate change, there's all this anxiety that coffee, um, which does not like very hot and dry conditions, will not grow. Um, so there was a publication that came out a couple of years ago. And then there was a follow up publication that came out last year in Nature Plants, where they were searching for a type of coffee that had previously been cultivated, I think back in the 1920s or something like that. And then it got lost in the sands of time. So basically, Robusta and Arabica took over as these duopolies and these other species just stopped being being cultivated. So they basically sent scientists out to talk to people in um, West Africa to look for the species still growing in its location. And they were able to find the species. And then in the follow-up paper, they were able to grow the species and also taste the coffee. And that was really exciting because the coffee tasted great. Um, but also this new species, which I think is called Stenophila, Cafea Stenophila, something like this, um, 
it also is known to grow under warmer, drier conditions. So this is sort of a, hey, maybe we can diversify our coffee so that we don't all end up in 2050 with caffeine hangovers um, in a hot, (laughs) hot climate change world. So this is kind of a similar thing, but for those of you who are not into coffee but are instead into chocolate, there was a similar kind of idea where people went into... um, Ecuador into the Ecuadorian Amazon and talked to local communities and did participatory collection surveys and they were basically trying to get an idea about the genetic diversity of the native cocoa trees um, that were found in that community and that's sort of the first step in a longer process which can hopefully help to make sure those are known about maintained and you know then obviously probably exploited long term but like let's hope in a positive way where we all get to eat chocolate forever. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that's that's really cool. I have another story about um sort of a long-standing research and um we have finally figured out or we have found a new trait of plants uh, that they kept secret from us, um which is <laughs> how they regulate their thirst. Um so <laughs> The thing about plants is in a in a simplified way how we talk about them usually is they they suck up water from the ground they pump it through their leaves and they emit water w- vapor through the stomata these little ho- openings on um on the leaves and mm-hmm. so they have always have to do this trade off so these little openings they let in carbon dioxide but they let out water and they have to let out some water because the whole transpiration sort of pulls up the water and the nutrients from the roots into the shoots so it's all a very comp- like important process but when it gets very hot and dry the they can't um, they can't lose all of their water so they close the stomata but then they go, don't get carbon dioxide in them and that's a problem because then they can't do photosynthesis and then they can't really grow so there's always this this trade-off and it's very important for crops crop farming as well because if they do the opening and closing in a more efficient way they can do more photosynthesis and they can grow better and so far we always thought that inside the leaf in the little gas spaces inside the leaf we pretty much have perfect saturation with water vapor so sort of the humidity inside the leaf is always at a hundred percent and then when Mm -hmm. they open the stomata then outside is less than 100 percent, and then water vapor moves out of the leaves and humidity leaves and then the water goes out of the out of the plant and that was the the thought but now they did like a very clever experiment with like a a weird double chamber that they clamped around the leaves that allowed them in some way and i couldn't read the full paper um to measure the humidity inside the gases spaces of the leaves and they figured out no they're not actually at 100 percent humidity in there they can be as low as below 80% of humidity, which means the plants can already regulate how much water they give away before the stomata happens. So the stomata are still Hmm. important holes that can open and close. But probably there are also these aquaporins, these little gates for water inside the cells that can um, control how much water is going out of each individual cell into the little gases, empty space between the cells in the leaves. Um, and this is news. Like but we didn't that, know that. And that's that, also having the the plant. Those different cells. They're also somehow aware of their relative position. Yeah. Close to the, the. I mean, which they are anyway, based on their differentiation. But like, they're sort of also like, hey, I'm very close to the stomata, so I should be a bit drier than the one three cells back. 
like yeah, closer so we, we don't, something we, like that. We, we don't know cooler. really how, how they regulate it, but they it means that plants have a way to keep the stomata open, so get carbon dioxide in while still reducing the, the amount of water that they lose through transpiration. Um, so they can sort of make the inside of the leaves a little bit drier so that when the stomata are open, less water is lost and they can still get some more carbon dioxide in. And this is just something we didn't know before and it, it requires so much more research to really figure out the regulation of it and if we can use it, if we can make it better or something like this. But just the fact that the plant isn't just a wet sponge inside, it just dries out when you open the holes, but it's it's has some it's internal in regulation. It's sneaky. Is, so, um, so sneaky. It's a completely new story. So this was published in Nature Plants, um, Humidity Gradients in the Airspace of Leaves. And uh, it's, it's really exciting. We're also linking, like the paper, unfortunately, is behind the paywall, but we're also linking to uh, a popular science article that explains it a little bit more. Um, so have a look. Cat fact. Um, this week I have a cat fact. It is a little bit of a depressing cat fact, honestly. Um, so if you really like cats, maybe don't listen to this one. <laughs> it's about killing cats, um, but in a way that's really plant relevant, actually. So it's actually something we've talked about before um, on the blog and maybe on the podcast as well. In Australia, where I'm from, cats are a huge problem. Feral cats eat just a ton of different animals. And Australia, we basically didn't have anything cat-like. So we had really a lot of small mammals and marsupials, which are the perfect snack size for cats. Once cats were introduced, they just gobbled everything up and they've been had like this really devastating effect on our native wildlife. And the problem is that a single feral cat can just kill a ton of cute marsupials. Many of them are already endangered, partially because of the cats and the foxes and the rabbits, and partially because of other human activities. And sometimes the cats don't even want to eat the animal. They just want to like bite a bit of them and then leave the rest. It's, it's not great. Um, yeah. So there's been a lot of efforts to try to get rid of cats, um, eradicate them. And the main efforts sort of involve catching them and, and removing them, euthanizing them. But cats are really difficult to, to catch and kill because with something like a fox, you can put down a piece of meat to bait, which is laced with poison, and the fox will eat it. But cats are specifically known to not eat rubbish. rubbish. They will only eat fresh cats, so they really like their, their food sources to be squeaking. Um, so you've kind of got this thing where you can't catch them easily via methods so what's the solution to that yarm transgenic mice that have cat specific poison in them so when the mice mouse is eaten by the cat it kills the cat yeah it's pretty close to that so um this is something that was published in the um acs applied polymer materials um, journal. It's not one we usually find, and I actually found the article originally by IFL, via IFL Science. They've designed a subcutaneous implant, so something you put under the skin of a cute native <laughs> mammal. Um, and Just like the implant on like uh, birth control thing, right? Like a little like chemically... Like that, but Yes, but instead of releasing the poison, so it's got poison in it, this implant, but instead of releasing the poison into the mammal, so this is not put in the cat, it's put in the mammal, so the prey, um, instead of releasing it, it's deliberately designed to not release the poison into the mammal. And in fact, the, the kind of finding here, the special um, discussion, is that they have a, 
um, reverse enteric coating. So they've got a, a material which um, surrounds the, the poison and it has specific pH selectivity to be solubilized under gastric pH. Mm-hmm. So basically, if it's sitting under the skin, it should be fine and it should not break down. Um, and then the second y- your little cute animal gets bitten by a cat, this pill goes into the stomach or this, this implant goes into the stomach and that should break down the outside of the pill and then should poison the cat. Um, the benefit being that, you know, a couple of small cute animals die, but then you kill a cat, which would otherwise have killed many, many animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's sort of a back up to this so as i said it's not supposed to break down under the skin but there's a um i don't know what is it sort of an um insurance plan also associated with the poison itself and this relates back to plants again this is what i've mentioned before on the podcast and the blog um australian mammals and marsupials often have adaptation to a certain type of poison. Um, And it's the fact that many native pea plants in Australia, they have a secondary metabolite that is can be very, very poisonous. But because these marsupials and mammals, they they sort of co-evolved with these peas, they can happily eat this poison and they're fine. Um, But non-native animals like cats and foxes they are very much not fine and they die under pretty small doses of this thing so the actual metabolite is slightly different from the um pharmaceutical form so it's it's, there's been an artificial version of the chemical made it's called 1080 now and that's the poison that they're using so it's this poison that is specifically not bad for native organisms because it's derived from a local plant that the native organisms co-evolved with and in this kind of arms race that we have they are not Mm -hmm. deterred by this poison so it's a bit of an awful story because it kills cats but it's killing cats for good reasons and it's kind of and yeah, interesting and, and and technically like and scientifically i find it really exciting this the level of of engineering that goes in there and and thinking about um the ways of delivery i just want to that just means i have to catch and implant lots and lots of mammals um for it to really work and for for a while they have to do that uh so not really because i think uh, i think that these so I think they've not quite tried it yet. I think it's yeah. very early levels. But actually, I think also these small marsupials are so endangered already that most of there's not many of them in the wild. And most of what's happening is that they're trying to repopulate. So they're doing breeding programs in zoos and in sort of parks. Ah. And they're trying to then repopulate. So I think a lot of them are already coming from like semi-captive conditions because they've been so decimated in, in the wild. And to get them back out there, they have to really go through this huge effort of clearing an area of cats and foxes and other problems and then they fence it off and then they put the the animals in but the problem with that is like cats are really great at getting over fences so it's been really hard to keep cats out and once you've got one cat in there it's impossible to catch it it's impossible to bait it so this is kind of the thing that even if that cat gets in hopefully it will end up knocking itself out the second it tries to snack on something cute and furry i think that's kind Mm -hmm. of the yeah background i'm a little bit um ad-libbing there based on (laughs) My yeah, own yeah. like background about experience about like Australian situation, but I, I think that kind of yeah, yeah. I don't think it would be catching as much as like a lot of these organisms are so decimated in the wild that there's just not yeah not many releasing of them or, releasing already uh, poison animals uh, poison mammals yeah and I mean I remember <laughs> learning I did conservation biology in university and I remember learning that 
they would set up these kind of reserves. They'd clear them from cats and then fence them and they'd get them ready. And they basically had sacrificial small animals that they would put in first. So they had sort of an Australian species that was small but was quite common and easy to breed. And they'd put those in, leave them for a couple of years and check that they weren't getting murdered before they put anything else in. Because Mm. the last thing you want to do is, you know, have only a few hundred left of X in the wild, breed them like under a really intensive program. And then like one cat comes and eats all of them just for a little snack, right? So it's a bit... It's a bit of a process. Anyway, if you want to read more about these kind of amazing poison pea plants and how they've been developed into the synthetic poison 1080, we also wrote an article about this, and I'll put the link to our website article on the show notes. So I think we're at the end of this week's uh, episode. Thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at plantpipettes. Theoretically, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. It's at Plants and Pipettes. I have to admit, I've been taking a bit of a break from social media and not going on there so often. So if I don't respond, I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, but but that's where we are. And we also have a website. Exactly. (laughs) It's www.plantsandpipettes.com and you can contact us via that. Yeah, that as well. And um, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye. Bye.